Alrighty, so where are we going to go from? Depending on how I edit this, I guess this could logically be the start of the final portion of the podcast, in which case, hello yep. everybody, um, we went out for a break each, and now we're back to record this final part. So I think we were perhaps uh, maybe leading into what our personal highlights were from the tour. Yes. Do you want to go first, Dex? Yeah, well, I think the one that really uh, blew me away uh, really early in the tour was the Electric Co. When it showed up in um, at San Jose number two, uh, anyone who was following along to our coverage uh, will probably remember the absolute freak out that I had when when uh, Edge burst into the first few notes of that because we essentially had no warning that that was going to happen. It was a complete surprise uh, because. It was rehearsed in Vancouver, but the only rehearsal report that we had was, I think it was either the first or the second day, and it was that Edge ran through it by himself. There was no report of the band doing it. Um, And I was like, oh, okay, Edge noodled around with it at a really early rehearsal, and that was it. It didn't appear in any of the rehearsal set lists, like when they were clearly checking a show um and i figured yeah it's not going to appear i remember including it when i did my rehearsals overview reference article and was just thinking ha 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 you know here's the electric code this is gonna look silly in retrospect yeah that never got done and i was completely wrong and i was just blown away and then when it became this you know rotational fixture and that out of all of the early songs got played the most. I'm absolutely stoked about that. I think it was the best song played on tour. And it's not unusual for um, Edge or Adam to kind of mess around with old songs, kind of as a warm-up exercise for themselves. So there was really no reason to think Electric Co. would make it into the set, and especially not to the extent that it did. I mean, Adam has been noted to play bass lines to 4th of July and even surrender before shows just as a warm-up, make sure everything's working. And nobody really expects those to be played. And so for Electric Code to come back, I mean, this is before I even joined the first time round. Uh, I recall that you made it the website's highlight at the end of the Vertigo tour. That, again, was, you know, one of those just unbelievable surprises. Um, you know, I flipped back then and I flipped this tour i i I still remember the frustration actually in 2006 when electric co didn't make it into the australian set lists i was lucky enough to have already heard it because i saw the band in boston um and you know got to hear the electric co and cat dub uh out of control all those sorts of amazing early songs uh you know, I, I say this especially as somebody who thinks that Boy is one of the band's two best albums, the other being The Unforgettable Fire. Uh, and I knew so many people in Australia who really wanted the Electric Co. to make it down here. And it didn't. Um, Dallas ran through it um, before Bris- the Brisbane shows during the rehearsals in Brisbane. But... Uh, obviously, the band never did. And I had honestly been wondering... Um, during those Vancouver rehearsals if it had been Dallas rather than Edge who had run through Electric Co. But 
you know, clearly that report that it was Edge was correct and, you know, the band were in fact working on it. I don't know if maybe they did sound check it that day before San Jose 2, um, because I know that was one of the shows where I only came online just before the show began and hadn't had a chance to check on if we'd had any sound check information sent to us or um, that had been posted on Twitter or on the various fan forums. Um, so, you know, maybe... Uh, maybe there was a sound check report. I honestly don't remember now. But the sheer fact that I had not been able to check that, like I just got online, you know, people have the power began. Or was it at the point where they were still using that other mix that involved um, the Ramones and various other clips? Whatever it was, the pre-show music began and Joey Ramone began, and I'm thinking, yeah, normal show, normal show. Oh, my God, the electric code. And it was just amazing. What I'm looking at here, I'm looking at the um, date for um, where Electrico debuted. And um, for the soundtrack, it doesn't have Electrico, but what it does have is On Cat Dub Into the Heart, which I think was done for the Roxy show. Yeah, they they did work on that a little bit before the Roxy show. Um, obviously, it didn't make it. I wish it had. But, I mean, for me, that that leads into my other highlight that wasn't a highlight of the tour, so to speak. It wasn't a full tour show. But that Roxy show, in and of itself, what a set list. Um, the first four songs in particular just blew me away. And 11 O'Clock TikTok, I think, is... If you ask me to make a list of U2's five best live songs, 11 O'Clock TikTok is in that top five. I think it is one of the best things I've ever done. And that performance at the Roxy was amazing. I wish it had had a longer, um, a longer run this year. I think you've got about ten songs on your top five list. Just naming offhand, I can think of uh, One Tree <laughs> Hill... Bad, yep. sort of homecoming, unforgettable fire, electric co, eleven o'clock TikTok. Your top five list is a bit longer than five songs, I think. Okay, no, let's see. One Tree Hill is definitely the number one. There's no question there, and Bad is the number two. Um, then I would say eleven o'clock TikTok, um, a sort of homecoming, and I would probably make the five Hawkmoon. Hawkmoon, oh, that's that, a great song. That live version from 18 November 1989 that I know I've posted the link to many times on Twitter. You can find it easily on YouTube. It is the best thing I can recall hearing. Stunning. That slide guitar intro is perfect. There was, I recall back when I edited Wikipedia fairly extensively, um, there's another Aussie who, um, oh, sorry, an Aussie, not, since you're not an Aussie, you're a Kiwi, but there was an Aussie <laughs> who, uh, <laughs> there, there was an Aussie who, uh, edited Wikipedia as well, and he, uh, discussed with me once about how he was actually there at that show, and he didn't have a clue what it was, or they started playing that song. He thought it was like a really distorted version of Where the Streets Have No Name at first, and then yeah. it turned out to be Hawkmoon. Fantastic stuff. Fantastic mm. version. I guess it's my turn for a highlight. This one's a yep. very personal highlight. I'm going to say it was at Toronto One when I was along the catwalk with my fiancé and I'd made up a sign, which I know I've tweeted before from both my personal account and the YouTube Gigs account, and the sign said, Our hearts beat as one, because we knew that the band had been um, rehearsing it, and it's the song that really made me a U2 fan, and so it seemed like a perfect opportunity to, you know, 
sometimes they see fan signs and sometimes they're encouraged to play those songs that they see on the sign so you know give it a shot and that didn't end up happening in toronto it the song didn't debut until new york but uh every single member of the band saw the sign to some degree I, I recall Larry walking back from the E stage, he saw the sign, and he didn't really look at us, but he kind of grinned at us from the corner of his eye. The Edge during, I think it was until, no, not until the end of the world, it was during, I actually can't remember what the song was, but he was walking down the catwalk as well, and he looked at the sign and smiled, and I grabbed my fiance, planted a kiss on her, looked back at the Edge, and he was laughing and giving a massive grin, so... He definitely yeah, enjoyed bad. that moment. Bono saw it and smiled. Adam saw it and smiled. So seeing the whole band smile at the sign was definitely my personal major highlight, even if they never ended up playing the song. I've, I've got a couple of my own um, sign stories. Um, when I went to um, uh, Boston for Vertigo, I think it was, it was the second Boston show, the 26th of May, 2005. And I went with this guy, and we um, we made these very improvised signs at the last minute when we realised we we're on the on the rail right in front of Edge, uh, and uh, we made one sign for One Tree Hill, one sign for Eleven O'clock Tick Tock, and held them up. Um, obviously, they didn't work, but. Um, uh, we did get Edge uh, laughing at them and shaking his head. Uh, and the guy that I was with was claiming credit for Out of Control being played that night because, well, it was an early song. It wasn't quite 11 o'clock tick-tock, but it was an early song. I think he might have been stretching the truth there a little, but um, it was certainly a, a, a fun evening. And I managed to get Edge to laugh at another song uh, at the um, third Dublin show in 2009, Uh when I took a, a sign for uh, that all-time U2 classic, perhaps another one that I'm going to have to uh, push into my uh, overcrowded top five live songs, Woman Fish. <laughs> Edge saw it and just, like, laughed and winced away. I think Bono saw it and had no idea what the hell it was all about. <laughs> Uh, no wonder if you go by the video of uh, uh, that performance, he was probably far too drunk to remember ever playing it. <laughs> so th that's my uh, experience with taking signs to U2 shows. Hands down, the best sign I've ever seen was at the beginning of this tour. And I think it was the second Vancouver show. And there were a few women with um, signs referencing Edge falling from the stage the night before. And oh, yeah, so I remember that. One of them was like, Boy Falls from the Sky, Watch Out Edge, The Fly, <laughs> all these different songs that in some way reference falling or not being on the ground. I remember and there was an I Fall Down sign. Yes, Edge Falls that Down. Was <laughs> yeah. Okay. No, that, that, that was classic. I guess back to the highlights. Uh, I'm assuming that one of your biggest highlights must have been uh, Edge answering your question. Oh, that was... <laughs> well, to get back to the um, the whole question of uh, great live songs, in fact, uh, I couldn't believe the answer there. I, I, I put through a few under the U2 for Paris hashtag and, you know, sort of hoped that maybe they'd see one of them. Um uh, I, I would have liked him to have answered the sort of homecoming question with, yes, we will play it, <laughs> not to be. Uh, but he answered the question that I asked um, about what did they think was their greatest live opener. I suppose the answer, in a sense, is kind of predictable. 
um, in that he said, you know, where the streets have no name in Zoo Station, which are obviously two absolutely classic picks. Um, you know, I was fully expecting him to say streets, and as and you know, as well he should because that was an absolutely impeccable, legendary opener that, you know, people to this day often suggest before a tour, why don't they go back to opening with streets? And I certainly think opening an encore with streets um, could be quite effective. You don't, I don't think you want to, you know, blow it straight away at the start of a show, but opening an encore with it um, could be very good. Um, I was quietly hoping maybe if they did answer that question, they'd say something a bit more unusual. Like Hawkmoon, uh, but it wasn't to be. <coughs> yeah, oh, I, sorry, you'll have to edit that out. <laughs> I asked um, a couple of questions from the YouTube Gigs account as well. Uh, I tried to keep it in mind of the types of questions that they'd done for that Facebook video a few months prior. And so I mostly asked rather silly questions like, Edge, would you ever wear a pink hat and stuff like that? Uh, none of those got answered, unfortunately, but <laughs> um, I, I guess going back to the highlights again, probably one of my, it's a minor thing, but one of the biggest highlights for me were the two occasions where Mofo was snippeted at the beginning of Iris. It seemed yes. absolutely perfect to me. I'm surprised they didn't keep doing that. There were a few occasions where they had something like that, where it seemed to work so well, but it didn't quite last for very long. Mofo and Iris, I think, was the very best introduction to the song. It fits so well thematically, the lyrics. And mm. I hope that if they do play Iris again, which is a possibility, but it depends what's on the next album, that Mofo makes it as a snippet into it. Um, Even better would be if they played Mofo in full. <laughs> but a guy can drink. There's, there's another one um, of a classic opener. I, I have considered using that Edge tweet as a springboard into a little article for the site, but I've got to find the time to write it. Time is a train, and that train seems to be making the future of the past far too quickly at the moment. I've got more time than I know what to do with, but no motivation to write the articles for you. <laughs> but no, if I have the time, I will maybe write something about... Um, classic openers that the band has used. So other highlights, um, perhaps, I I was quite surprised and impressed when they did what you might term the Songs of Innocence B-sides, the ones from the bonus disc, yes. um, Lucifer's Hands and especially Crystal Ballroom. I mean, I'm not maybe as high on Crystal Ballroom as a lot of other people are, but I still think it's, you know, a very good song that probably should have been on the album. And that version they played with the extended Miss You snippet was really good, and I don't know why that only got two runs. It should have been played much more. I wasn't as sold on Crystal Ballroom live as most other people seem to be. It didn't quite work for me. But that said, it was supposed to be played at Toronto 2, and I was at that concert and would have heard it for, I think, the song's final, what would have been the song's final performance. But Edge had a guitar malfunction twice in a row on the E stage, and so they skipped straight to Every Breaking Wave instead. That's and, shattering. Yeah, so I could have had the Crystal Ballroom. If you were at Toronto 2 and you didn't realise it, it was on the set list, but they didn't play it because of those guitar malfunctions by the Edge. Would have come after oh. All I Want Is You. 
which was supposed to be later in the set list after Beautiful Day. But when that girl <laughs> on the E stage said that was the song she wanted to play, they decided to move that up. And then they wanted to do Crystal Ballroom as well anyways. But well, there's, there's another one of my tour highlights, actually, because um, I've known um, Stephanie or Gibson Girl on Interference for many years. Uh, you know, we, we're both, you know, posted on that site, um, you know, for, for a long time. And I was just really happy to see somebody who I, you know, had known from the fan community for so long get up, especially because I think she only went to those Toronto shows, you know, she wasn't somebody who has been to heaps and heaps of shows. This was, you know, a really lucky opportunity, and it was really great because, you know, it's always great when people that you know from around the fan community get that opportunity to go up. Um, you know, some of our Twitter followers have, obviously, and have had amazing times. Um, but, you know, I, th I think that was, you know, the case of somebody who I've known the longest, you know, I remember... Uh, you know, I suppose posting under threats back in like 2004 or something. So that was that was really cool. Um, you know, to to see that happen. Well, Stephanie, that's a song that I've wanted to hear for years and years. So you helped make my dream come true. Thank you. <laughs> well, you you there, there's another thing because um, you you've managed to hear the the song that I swear to God is never performed at any concert that I'm going to. So. If you want to hear All I Want Is You live, just go to a show about three or four after my last show of a tour, because that is when it will be played. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that song is deliberately avoiding me. It's a personal thing. Uh, well, you know, I'm sure there are people in Spain or New Zealand who think, oh, God, not this staple Spanish eyes again, or how, how, many, how many times are they going to play One Tree Hill? Can't they play something different by now? <laughs> it, I, I do remember um, before the 2006 Vertigo shows in Auckland, um, I was watching the news, um, like, the night before, and there was actually a thing, and I emphasize this was the national news, about... Will you two play One Tree Hill or not? <laughs> but that's how popular it is in New Zealand. Oh, I'm not surprised. It, it was a single only in New Zealand, I think. Possibly Australia yeah. as well. And it was number one in New Zealand for six weeks. Uh, they didn't even make a music video for it. And so what they did was they combined footage from Unforgettable Fire and With or Without You music videos. To run on TV. <laughs> Any more highlights for you, Axe? So, I mean, there have been many. Uh, you know, many surprises, many unexpected things. Oh, Shine Like Stars is a big one, you know, that people took signs for it and they actually worked. And then the Shine Like Stars started cropping up every now and then. I was at that show where it came up first time. Again, Toronto 2. We all, oh, we all did that. the signs at Toronto 1. It was a fan campaign. They were handing out signs in the GA line. Bono saw them all night one, didn't sing it, but they brought them all again night two and he sang it, so... I mean, it took me 17 shows to finally hear it. Um, and then when I did, it was at Dublin 3 in 2009. And I just remember what happened, just this, like, surge of energy in the song. And I shouted those lyrics so loud. It was such a good moment. And, you know, just to have it cropping up, you know, every now and then this tour has been really cool. Um and then there's been, you know, those other things, like, where the hell did October come from? And then for it to become not just a staple, 
but a really effective one. Um, you know, with the segue into bullets, I never would have predicted that. Um, never would have predicted Zeropa. Um, you know, that that was really, really cool. But what about yourself? Just want to say, halfway through the second leg, there are already people saying October should be dropped. So oh, that was weird. Like people were like, oh, this song should be dropped midway through whatever. I'm like, um, a two-minute song that isn't pushing out anything else from the set. I think we can keep. Now, if you want to talk to me about pride sounding past that's used by date, sure, there's a good discussion to be had there. But October, which we haven't heard for twenty years. That was that was very weird, but then, then again, we've received some very strange tweets, like how uh, by recording the snippets, uh, we are playing U2's game and enabling them not varying the songs that they play because the snippets are enough. That was hilarious. Uh, I think everybody got a good kick out of that one. <laughs> I guess I have two more highlights that I want to mention. Uh, well, three, I guess. Obviously, the first one, which I guess doesn't really need much discussion. We've already touched on it. Is uh, bringing the fans on stage for uh, Angel of Harlem or All I Want Is You, those kind of songs. That was Ooh. always a nice touch. I always enjoyed seeing that. Everybody remembers some of the people who came up on stage and played. Uh, Harry Cantus of U2 Wanderer was one. Um, Toronto One, there was a U2 brother and his band. They played Desire. Only Edra remained on stage. Everybody else was off stage watching, which was fun. Paco, the little guy from Mexico with his brother playing Angel of Harlem. Lots of people who came on stage, got to jam with the band, and really, I think everybody had a lot of fun with that. Yeah, there are lots of special moments there. The two biggest highlights for me, I would say, were Bad in Dublin, where Andy Rowan was at the show, and Bono's emotional speech about him, and how it was the events in Raised by Wolves that led him down that dark road, but how he'd since come away from it. I found that incredibly inspiring. And then I think what would have to be the biggest tour highlight for pretty much everybody, and that would be Eagles of Death Metal joining the stage in Paris. That was an amazing way to end the tour. It was so fitting, really heartfelt, really effective. Speaking of Paris, this is something that we did plan to talk about. Probably would have fit in a bit better earlier, but we had quite a few delays on this tour. Obviously, Paris was the biggest one with the shootings, uh, the terrorist attacks. It was quite unnerving. I was the one who was online. Uh, you weren't online yet, Axe. I think Matt was just about getting ready for bed when the news started breaking. And then the That's news right. started coming out that there'd been shootings at a concert venue and it's like oh shit it was really unnerving there were a lot of people asking questions who were worried on twitter all over the web and it was everybody's asking for information it's like this is what we know this is what's been happening um we're not gonna say or pass on any rumors we're only gonna say what's been established as facts this is what we know and it was horrifying and yet in some ways also a relief that it was not the band's venue that was attacked and that sounds like a horrible thing to say but I was more concerned with the people who I do know who were at that concert who were in Paris for the event and that's where my worries primarily were so to learn that they were all okay in all that chaos was the biggest relief for me. Whereas for me 
Um, you know, I'm a big fan of some of the other bands that Josh Hogg has been in. Not a fan of Eagles of Death Metal, but um, some of his other work, um, you know, I think is really quite incredible. So I was just absolutely horrified, especially um, because I'm a really heavy gig goer anyway. Um, that happened at the start of Melbourne Music Week. Um, I had, you know, been in a gig the night before, the day that it happened, I was going to two more. Um, that whole week, you know, I, I think I did something in the order of about 14, 15 concerts in the space of about eight days. Um, and, you know, so to see a concert venue get attacked in that way had this sort of personal resonance um, that's really quite hard to describe. Um you know, any sort of large-scale attack, you know, gets your attention and horrifies you in some way. But when it's an attack on something with which you have a particularly strong personal connection, I think it, even when you have no actual involvement, um, it nonetheless resonates in, in a different way. So, you know, that, that was quite affecting and... Um, I mean, I, to be honest, wasn't thinking quite so much um, about the U2 connection. I was trying to figure out you know, everything that was going on and, you know, to keep the site updated. But I think Matkin was doing, you know, a, a, a perfectly sufficient job of that anyway. Though I was quite worried about, you know, the, the actually the other shootings that were in cafes and what have you, because, you know, I knew of so many fans who were in Paris, you know, who would have been out and about that evening enjoying the city. And um, I think there was one fan site that had a gathering not tremendously far from yeah. the attacks. You and so that's you, it, you yes. They, were, they had a gathering not far from the... I think it was the stadium, which you two have played in the past when they've done the stadium tours in Paris. There was a, yeah, a U2 action gathering nearby, and they were all okay, quite thankfully. But, you know, it's kind of this question of, oh, God, like, is in, do we know anyone mixed up in this? And, you know, and then there are other people, like, travelling to Paris, including the contest winners, and it was a case of, well, what's going to happen now? What You know, there was all that talk of borders being closed and... Um, you know, trying to let fans know if they should turn around, if they should stay home, if they should keep travelling, what do you have to do? It was really quite a hairy and scary sort of situation um, and not, not one that you ever expect to cover. Um, of course, this was the second security scare of the tour because the first one was in Stockholm when they had to cancel because they couldn't oh account God. for a person with a gun. That was such a ridiculous sort of occurrence. You know, how that bloke had managed to get through was just unbelievable. And the way that dragged on and on, um, I mean, Matt was there. Um, you know, he posted videos from the cancellation. I feel really bad for some people who had travelled a very long way um, and who could not attend the rescheduled date two nights later um, and had to go home. That, that must have been galling. But even in the moment of darkness, there's always that moment of light that shines through. And I think the biggest example of this is that Whiteout Belfast movement, which came about 
just in the aftermath of the Paris shootings. We don't often discuss or pass on fan campaigns and such, um, but this was really an exception, and it's one that definitely worked out. And even you two took on the hashtag that the Whiteout Belfast team had uh, done to promote it, Stronger Than Fear. Mm. And it was something that they incorporated into the remainder of their shows. And in Belfast, Larry Mullen, he wore white like the campaign had asked for. And so there were fans wearing white all in the arena at both shows. Larry was wearing white. It was a success. And I think it sent a message as well. It may not be a message that is ever received to terrorists, but it's a message that was received by everybody in attendance and by the fan community as a whole. And if anything, I think it brought every fan closer together as a community. Mm. I mean, those Belfast shows were great. And I think it was fantastic that the band finally got back to Northern Ireland, having not played there since 1997. And, you know, the, the only shows that I've played in Northern Ireland um, since 1982 were in 87 and in 97. So, you know, there haven't been many visits since the band really broke through and became famous. Um, so, you know, to have these two big shows was fantastic in and of itself. And then they came to have this incredible emotional resonance after the tragedy in Paris. And I, I, I think those shows will be remembered for a very long time. The final six shows of this tour may have been the strongest consecutive six shows that they've ever done in their career. The two yeah. Belfast, the four in Dublin, and then the final two in Paris. That may have been the strongest run that they have ever gone on. They were just consistently amazing performances with real emotional depth. And, well, unfortunately, with... The final two concerts in Paris, the second leg of the tour is now over, and we don't have any information about what may be forthcoming. No, so, there are rumours doing the rounds, but they're, at this stage, not particularly firm, or more to the point, vaguely contradictory, because for a long time, it seemed to be a fairly solid rumour that there, were going, there was going to be a European leg at some point in the first half of next year, followed by a North American one, um, you know, mid-year. And now that's gone really off the boil, um, and it seems to be a suggestion that there might not be a third leg until maybe around September next year, which I find extraordinary. I mean, I guess I thought they want to get songs of experience out there, but that is a remarkably large gap. And I feel like they've got so much momentum right now, um, you know, with the Paris broadcast in particular, that got a very warm reception, good reviews. And I actually thought that we were, up until about a week before the broadcast, when the rumours did actually start to change their trajectory at that point, up until then, I thought we were fairly likely to get the announcement of 2016 dates within a day of the Paris broadcast. And obviously we don't have anything yet, and I hope we get clarification sooner rather than later. Yeah, I'm not convinced that there actually will be a third leg in uh, 2016. I think it's more likely to be 2017. Here's the reasons why, and if you haven't been paying attention to rumours, What's being suggested is that rather than tour and record at the same time as they've currently been doing, 
and as they most famously did in the case of Zuropa. What they're going to do is they're going to take a break, take six to eight months to finish Songs of Experience, and then announce the third leg of the tour and tour, do the actual tour. I'm not convinced that there will be a third leg because, firstly, the album is never out when they first say it's going to be out. It'll, it will be at the end of next year, not in August or September, as it's being suggested. And they won't want to book the tour before the album is finished because that is exactly what happened with Pop. And we all know the way that they regard Pop, that they're certainly not happy with the final result. Half the songs on the album have been remixed in some capacity, and it's all but vanished from live set lists since the end of the Elevation tour. So I am not convinced that, that we will see a tour leg until 2017. I'm still expecting there to be something next year. I think we'll just be a spectacular loss of momentum. And if they do take so much time out, how many times have we heard the band say, oh, we're going to finish an album within a year? And it never happens. So I, I really don't want it to be that this is the you know, end for now. They're going to record the album, then that gets pushed back further and further, and then this tour never gets returned and it's just a new one somewhere down the track. I, I, I hope that is not the case, and I'm frankly optimistic for whatever foolish reason at the moment that, where, you know, there will be at least something later next year. Um, I hope I'm right. The album, the tour I should say, it is called the Innocence and Experience Tour. And at least for the first portion of the tour, most people would look at it as the first set up to the end of Until the End of the World being, an in it, being the Innocence portion. And then the second set and encore being the experience portion. But I'll I'd wager money that really that these first two legs are the innocence portion, and whatever comes next will be the experience portion. And because of that, I do not think that we're going to see what we saw on Zoo TV, where they just slowly incorporate a handful of tracks to be played maybe 10 times total, into the set list. I think that when they tour again, it's going to be a totally different set list to what we've seen so far. And that means that we will have seen the end of some Songs of Innocence tracks, uh, not including the ones that didn't really get out there. We've discussed California and Volcano. There's a good chance that songs like Iris, Cedarwood Road, maybe even Raised by Wolves, will not be making it into any future set list. They have been played for the final time. Yeah, I think we can probably lock in Joey Ramone, Every Breaking Wave and Song for Someone is sticking around. They're the singles. The singles always, have, well, almost always, have the best chance of sticking around. Um, it's been very rare for singles um, to disappear from the set list completely. The only um, two really big examples I can think of are Who's Gonna Ride Your Wild Horses and If God Will Send His Angels. And I, I would suggest that part of the reason why if God Was His Angels was released as a um, single late in 1997 was the Christmas tree lyric. Uh, you know, it came out as a single in what, late November or December 97. And that was also at that point where they were just releasing almost anything from pop in the desperate hope that something would stick. Um, Who's Gonna Ride Your Wild Horses is a bit more of a surprising one, released literally as it was dropped from the set list. Um, even though it probably had more potential to stay around. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, songs that have been singles stay in the set. 
they may sometimes go into rotation after a while, um, but generally they stick around. And like you look at Origin of the Species, struggled to get into the um, vertebrate set list originally, but then when it came out as a single, it became very regular. And then well, it's sort of have continued to make a distinction with... it, 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 it disappeared again, sorry? We, we have to make a distinction with Original of the Species, because that was never a commercial single, it was only a promotional single. Yeah, but it had like the music video and everything. Yeah, well, that, that was a rare thing, it was a, it was a promotional single with the music video, but no commercial release. Generally, like you're saying, the early singles especially, they tend to stick around, the first two or three from the album's life cycle. The ones afterwards may not stick around quite as long. Uh, I'm thinking All Because of You, which was the yeah. fourth single most of the world. Um, it was the second single in some parts, but that was one of the songs that got dropped. All the Elevation singles stuck around the Elevation tour. Magnificent dropped towards the end of the 360 leg. So, in, in general, the earlier singles are the ones that stick around most. Like the, um, the last time that a lead single was not played at every single show on its debut tour was when Desire missed one Love Town concert. Uh, it missed one of the Sydney Love Town shows in September 89, so fairly early in the tour. Um, I think... That was the 28th of September, 89 show. So definitely one of the three September shows. Um, and then before that, you have With or Without You missing the very first night of the Joshua Tree tour, despite the fact that it was the lead single. That's really unusual. Um, it was then played at every show from then on. Um, but yeah, no lead single since the end of Love Town has missed a single show on its debut tour. Even Get On Your Boots lasted out 360, despite the fact that by 2011, it seemed that it was going off the boil a bit. I was starting to expect it to maybe miss a, a few shows, but it, it, it stuck around. So, Well, the most I, played song from that album, uh, sorry, the most played single from that album was, funnily enough, I'll Go Crazy If I Don't Go Crazy Tonight. Courtesy of that double performance when they shot the music video on the second night in Barcelona. You know, I'm not surprised that that song, not, neither of those songs made it to um, the Innocence and Experience tour. Um, you know, Crazy Tonight was very much a 360 thing with that remix. Um, and Boots was, I don't think, will, will not be remembered as a particularly great lead single, it certainly did not achieve the resonance or the cut through that Vertigo Beautiful Day had. I saw a chance for Crazy tonight, but not in the remix form. I thought they might give the uh, the original mix a, a spin, since that was really only done a couple times in the promotional tour for No Land on the Horizon, and then of course once on the tour. Yeah, that could have, you know, been an option, but I think there were so, you know, other if they were going to do something from No Line on the Horizon, um, there are other songs already ahead of it in the queue. Um, and as we've seen, only one of them, Magnificent, actually graduated to the set list and only did it for a single occasion. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I think it'd be very surprising if Joe Ramone is not played at any subsequent dates um, of this tour. 
And yeah, Break Every Break Your Wagon song for someone are very likely to stick around. The other songs I think it is going to very much depend on what a new album sounds like and what themes they want to get across. Like, mm-hmm. if there's still, you know, a strong, um, you know, political violence theme, then Raised by Wolves is a good chance to stick around. Um, Cedarwood Road, I think, has been one of the live highlights of the tour. It's had rave reviews. I could imagine it sticking around simply on the basis of its live strength. Um, you know, Iris, obviously, is a very personal song for Bono and needs the right context. Um, so, yeah, I, I think Invisible is done. I don't think we're going to see that again. Yeah, it's it seemed very much um, a first-leg thing, and it, it worked very well for what it did to open the second set. But And again, it depends on what the material of the next album is like and how they decide to construct the show, but... I don't think it will be sticking around too much. No. I also no, wouldn't I, be surprised if, going to an older song now, we saw the end of Even Better Than The Real Thing. It was mm. a regular up until the beginning of the Elevation Tour, then it kind of dropped out. Missed Vertigo completely. They brought it back at the end of 360 in the Fish Out of Water mix style, and it sounded fantastic. I'm not so sure that they needed to play it in that style again this tour, Clearly they like the Fish Out of Water mix, but it didn't quite resonate with me as much as it did in the 360 tour. I think if they were going to play it, it would have been better to do it as the album version, or at the very least do that introductory guitar thing on the guitar instead of playing through the speakers. Mm. Um, I think think it should stick around, um, at least for any leg that comes down to Australia. Um, I say partly out of self-interest, I've never heard it live before, but um, also because, you know, it hasn't been played down here since 1998. And this is, you know, the other good thing about it staying around for the European League this year, is that with the exclusion of a Paris club gig in 2000 and Glastonbury in 2011, even with the real thing had not been played outside of the Americas anywhere since 1998. So, and it hadn't been played in Europe, obviously, since, apart from those two gigs I just mentioned, since 1997. So it was really good for it to get the run, and I, I would not object if it stuck around, but, like, you know, it, it might not be a surprise if it, if it disappears. Bullet the Blue Sky, I think, will stick around. They've rediscovered it. It yeah. needed a break after the Vertigo tour. They gave it that break. They brought it back for the first time ever without a new original solo by The Edge, they reverted to the style used on the Joshua Tree tour. And, oh my God. It was one of the best things I've done this whole tour. Uh, It was incredibly effective, very self-aware performance that re-revitalized song after Vertigo tour performances that were, quite frankly, duds. It's um, always nice to see an older song get a new kick of energy. Absolutely. I Will Follow got it after Pop Mart. It needed it. Pride got it to an extent after missing those shows on 360 when they brought it back. It had new energy. Yeah, it hasn't been too bad this tour, though. I wouldn't miss it if it was good. Yeah, there's a lot of songs that over the years just seem to lack energy because they play them so often. 
I so wouldn't mind without you, without I think, it. is a glaring example of that. Which one? Without you. I was going to say the same thing, yeah, we said it at the same time, I think. It's been played to death. Not that I dislike the song, I do quite enjoy it. It's one of my favourite songs from the Joshua Tree. But it hasn't quite had a great live kick for years. Not... I don't think it sounded good live since 1992. I think, yeah, I think it needs a bit of a break, and then when they bring it back, it'll sound so much better. Sometimes it's not a ma matter of whether, you know, we dislike hearing the song. It's, you know, does it fit the context and is it really the best version that they could be playing? Mm. In the case of With or Without You, I don't think it's as good as it has been in the past. I think it could be well served with a rest and when they bring it back, it'll sound fantastic again. This is a band that has a plethora of hits and it's quite surprising how certain hits get played every tour. Whereas other extremely well-known songs are very rarely played. We mentioned When Love Comes to Town earlier. You know, it's a song on a best of. It's very well-known, yet it struggles to get into the set um, when, you know, Desire and Angel of Harlem always seem to be chosen ahead of it for Rattle and Hum representation. Um, you know, likewise... How hard can it possibly be for In God's Country to be a more um, to be played more consistently? It's not an obscure song by any means. It's well, it did get it did get one performance, <laughs> one. courtesy of a very excited fan who was trying to play it at about three times the speed that the band wanted to. <laughs> that was that was amazing. Really, it 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 was nice to hear it. Um, it's nice that the band agreed to play it even though it's not one that they'd been rehearsing. Yeah, it wasn't on the set list. I don't think it's really been something that the band have thought of since the end of the Elevation tour when they brought it back for a couple of surprise concerts. Yeah, you know, it's got snippets of it occasionally in appropriate locales, but yeah, it, it hasn't been rehearsed or anything since the end of Elevation. Are there some songs that you feel are maybe too difficult for the band to play? There are some that, you know, just have too many batting tracks or whatever that, if they're going to be done, need a lot of rehearsal and, you know, are never going to be played on a band. Like, you see people all the time, um, you know, desperately requesting certain songs that are not just going to be plucked from obscurity. There's going to need to be some sort of motivation for the band to do it. Um, like, you think of, honestly, most songs from the Zeropa album um, are not going to be played at the drop of a hat. So yeah, The I only one that they might get away with is, well, two maybe, are Stay and First Time. Yeah, or a spare version of The Wanderer probably wouldn't be too difficult. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, you're not going to just get Lemon or Numb from out of nowhere. Or even Dirty Day, which might be the most U2-ish of the songs on the album, apart from Stay. Yeah. I mean, I think this is in general an issue for 90s songs more than it is for other decades. Um, and, I, like, like, it seems they can rehearse early 80s songs um, fairly quickly and get them to an acceptable enough level. And some of the more recent ones are perhaps not too difficult in that regard either. But, uh, yeah, a lot of stuff from the 90s is going to be more difficult. And that's why, you know, songs from pop 
it seems everyone wants him to play something from it, and yet they don't. And they can't just pluck one from the middle of nowhere with, you know, a couple of exceptions. Um, but, you know, they're, like, they're not just going to suddenly start playing Disco Take because someone requested it. Um, you'd think Staring at the Sun wouldn't be too hard, but, yeah, it seems that the 90s is harder to mine than the it 80s. It really depends with Staring at the Sun because when you hear it acoustically, it doesn't seem like it would be too difficult to do. But then when you listen to the full band attempts early on the Popmart tour... And as Bono's trying to sing, there's just so much going on with the rest of the band that it always fell apart. Really and I don't think that's a matter of it being too not enough time to rehearse it. I think it's a matter of their song being so complex that there were too many elements for them to juggle. That's something that really hindered them on Zoo TV with Zuropa and Babyface. I'd argue that it's the reason why Electrical Storm fell flat on 360. And personally, I think it's the reason why the Troubles struggle to have to make the set list this tour. There's... I think maybe the problem with the Troubles was sticking with um, Nicky Lai's um, vocals when they should have aged to sing it. I think that, but as as well as the vocals which they had overhead, they also had the a lot of the a lot of the musical stuff early on in that song is backing tracks. It's not Edge's guitar, it's not anything in the bass, it's not anything in the drums. So when you've got Bono singing, Edge playing a couple of chords, and then that all that backing stuff, I find it takes away from the performance. It makes it less. I think a much better strategy with the Troubles would have been to start with uh, possibly Edge, more likely Bono, singing the introductory lyric, then Edge strumming the chords, Bono singing the main verse, going into the chorus, having Adam and Larry join in, and as the song is building up, then slowly introduce those backing tracks overhead. I think having them in there from the very start made the song lose a lot of power, because people are there and they know, they understand that half of what they're hearing isn't being done by the band. It's, to me, it almost sounds like a musical version of lip-syncing, because it's not the band playing it. And I think it would have been a lot better to introduce it part way through the song at a low volume, build it up slowly, and then when it's at the power and the song is at its full emotional crescendo, nobody's noticing these backing tracks anymore. Nobody's noticing that they're even there, but they are there and it adds so much more power to the song. And so I think that that's something that if they ever wanted to try the troubles again, they'd need to address. Same with Electrical Storm. I think it had the same problem in 360. They tried the overly complicated and yet better known William Orbit mix of the song instead of the, I guess you could say, more traditional and probably far easier to arrange band version. Yeah, you know, there's been a couple of times maybe they've just been too ambitious with how they wanted to play the song when they should have gone for a more simple um, arrangement. And it would be nice, you know, some, sometimes we complain about, you know, why can't they play this song? I, something like Staring at the Sun, they've had so much trouble with it, I'm not sure they have the appetite to try it full band again. The performance at the Decade of Difference concert in between the tours, uh, where they debuted A Man and a Woman, when it was just Bono on the Edge, they had the orchestra, and it was the orchestra playing uh, what would normally be the electric guitar parts. And mm. they, those were the parts that they struggled with in Popmart. 
And to a degree, it still made Bono struggle when you listen to the song. He kind of loses track of the lyrics in some portions. But it still sounded fantastic. Would it be great if they tried it and pulled it off? Absolutely, but some of these songs are just so complicated that maybe they just don't have the time to. It's, it's interesting that they, um, during the Vancouver rehearsals, considered working with an orchestra, uh, but that never, never came Whatever happened um, to fruition. Uh, there were a lot of songs that could have worked well with the orchestra. Obviously, the Troubles would be one that would get the, rid of the need for the backing tracks. One of them done that with an orchestra multiple times. I believe um, with Without You was rehearsed with the orchestra. Every Breaking Wave, like they did on the all the promo tour appearances. Yeah, I mean, I thought that was a lot. I thought, you know, we were going to get an orchestral version of that on the tour. They'd take, you know, a small orchestra with them on the tour uh, because it had been such a fixture of the... Um, of the promo appearances, so I was surprised when we got the very spare version that we did, and I, I very much hope that in the future, if Every Broken Wave stays in the set list, as I expect it will, that it will actually be a full band version, because I think a full band Every Broken Wave would be very effective in the encore with Beautiful Day, and that would give Songs of Innocence some representation in the encore. Even the, um, even if they did it like on the promo tour without the orchestra where Adam and Larry are still joining in at the end yes. I think it would be it would be some difference it would give the song a bit of a new life on any future appearances yeah even if it's still sparse it would still sound good that way I think indeed so I think we're kind of at a point where we want to mostly wrap up what we've been talking about we've probably been going well according to my clock this is about the seventh hour since we started recording well of course we have some interruptions we've had a lot of audio problems um we've had to break some <laughs> food and drink and so i guess at this point we kind of want to bring it to a close um before we do there's some site features we want to talk about there's some stuff that we introduced during the tour and some stuff that we're hoping to introduce while the tour is on hiatus so you don't forget about us and i'm don't remain unemployed um because you two gigs is my life and i need to get a life outside <laughs> because um, I, I need to balance all my writing duties with trying to write history <laughs> it is perhaps no surprise that the guy who uh spent much of his teenage years learning U2's life history went on to, in his professional career, become a historian uh, of other things, but uh, a historian all the same. Well, okay, so some stuff that we have historically now on the site. Um, the biggest new feature is one that I was very proud to work on and bring to the site. It's what brought me back to U2 gigs, and that is a comprehensive list of live U2 releases while for some people have asked questions about this when we've tweeted about it before, what we consider a live release for a U2 song is a song written by U2, including B-sides. Covers are not included uh, because we have over 800 different songs and the list would be too long if we did. We include collaborations if a band member was involved in writing the song and we only include the song if it's a complete performance. So, for instance, at the A Tribute to Heroes concert after the December 11th attacks, you 2 snippeted Peace on Earth before Walk On. We include Walk On on this list, but we do not include Peace on Earth. Um, at the end of this list, 
we have a list of unreleased songs, which is at this moment topped by Every Breaking Wave. Um, in fact, three, five of the top six songs are from Songs of Innocence, no surprise. Every Breaking Wave, The Miracle, Song for Someone, and Invisible. And then Cedarwood Road is tied with Who's Gonna Ride Your Wild Horses, which is just behind Wire for the oldest song on the list that's not had a release. Um, we're not including songs that have been streamed or shown on TV, which is why they're on the list, but uh, only songs that can be released in a purchasable format. It was a lot of hard work, but I found it very fun, and I hope you find it just as enjoyable to read as I did. I came up with the list mostly because, you know, there are some songs that I like. I'd like to have as many versions of them as I can. What are the legal ways to get these songs that I really like? And so we've got what I believe to be pretty much the most comprehensive list that there is. I hope that you enjoy it. It's linked on the side menu, so if you're bored or you're looking for a particular song you'd like to own a copy of, you can check that list out. I mean, I, I think Matthew did a fantastic job with this list. It's really interesting reading, especially to see what songs have been released a billion times and probably don't need any further releases versus those that have surprisingly either never been released or only had a couple. Um, or some of the really surprising ones of songs that you don't expect that have managed to get some sort of release, though often... Um, uh, in those cases, they can be very obscure releases, like how, um, what, like One Tree Hill and Zoropa and um, that sort of thing turn up on YouTube.com fan club releases. I think the funniest one that I have is that there are two live releases of Boy Girl, and they were recorded within a week of each other, both of them at the same venue. Um, one of them, of course, ended up on Another Time, Another Place, and that fan club release. And then the other one was from the week prior, and it was included on the remastered version of Boy, as well as the I Will Follow single. And so, you know, you wouldn't really expect Boy Girl to have two live releases, let alone done within a week of each other. No, I quite like that stat. There's a lot of songs that you wouldn't think would have releases, uh, let alone as many as they do. So it's an interesting list. Um, I encourage you to check it out. And um, I think um, Mackin's been a very busy bee because he also wrote uh, some very good feature articles during the tour. Yes, leading up to the HBO broadcast, there was the U2 Love Paris one, um, just documenting the different releases that U2 have done in the city of Paris. And then after the first Paris show, when the second slot was mysteriously missing, I wrote a two-part series called Mystery of Missing Tracks, which looks at why the song may have been skipped, as well as why songs have been cut from U2 releases in the past. Um, Apart from those feature articles, the newest feature is, of course, the um, setlist chart by Mark Peterborough. Was... talked about earlier, but should emphasise again, because it really is such a fantastic visualisation of the tour data. Uh, I am deeply impressed with it and think that Mark has done uh, a remarkable job with this keeping it up all tour. Uh, so full credit to him. Um, we hope that he continues it for uh, the future. It's, yes, and it's one, an incredible one, resource. Yeah, uh, an amazing resource, and you know it's it's definitely something that would be desirable to have going forward. 
Um, one of the things that I'm going to try to do, um, should I find the time, um, like I say, I don't know where the hell my time is going, but if I find the time, I want to revisit my predictions, because as many of you remember, uh, before songs uh, before the um, Innocence Experience Tour, just after Songs of Innocence came out, I did a series of tour predictions. Now, these were all written before we knew anything about the tour. Not all. We knew... Not all. And not, well, okay, not all. The very last <laughs> one was not, but I wrote, I wrote it with the same mentality. I, I deliberately based it on as if I knew nothing about the nature of the tour so that it stayed in the spirit of the original versions. I forgot to do, uh, what was it, No Line on the Horizon. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, I, I think I also forgot to post um, How to Smash an Atomic Bomb, but that one had been written before the tour was announced. It was just sitting around on my hard drive. Um, but the, um, you know, those were written before the tour was even announced. So there was very much, you know, wild stabs in the dark. Some songs I would have made different predictions for had I, you know, known um, anything about the nature of the tour. But um, I will, you know, maybe go back and see how accurate my predictions were, uh, especially because I am quite chuffed to say that all of the songs that I said would uh, had a 100% chance of appearing on the tour did, in fact, appear. Thank God they brought New Year's Day into the set list. Uh, that was the last the one you were waiting for. <laughs> yeah. But, all, you know, all the others showed up very quickly. And I think most, maybe all, of the songs that I gave a 90% or more chance to showed up. Um, what I'd like to see, honestly, Axe, if you have the time, of course, is depending on when Songs of Experience drops, if you could do the same thing again for... Uh, the third leg and onwards. That would be kind of interesting, I think. I quite enjoy making those predictions. Um, it's been very interesting to see what gut instincts uh, instincts were correct and where I, you know, was completely off. Like, I predicted the sweetest thing. I was certain about that. I was not surprised at all when it showed up. On the other hand, um, as Macklin has reminded me on multiple occasions, I gave two heart speeders one absolutely no chance. <laughs> oh, so. pers I was personally predicting uh, seconds uh, before the tour started. There seemed to be kind of um, a rise in nuclear fear again, so I thought seconds might make a return with some modified lyrics, lyrics like um, instead of USSR, GDR, London, New York, Peking, it would be like Russia, USA, London... Pyongyang, Beijing, or something like that. But um, well, I'm going to be bold and say seconds will never be performed ever again in any context. No! <laughs> I, I'm not happy about that. I would very much like it to come back. But I think that is definitely a song that is truly dead and buried. Well, other things that we're working on, that we're looking at doing, we've already mentioned some tweaks to the database. Uh, we've mentioned snippets, of course. That's a constant thing. Do you hear is coming? Coming to surrender? That kind of thing that we're starting to look at. Uh, we have some more upcoming features that uh, I'm hoping to be able to work at sometime soon. It's possible they'll never occur, in which case this will be a promise, empty promise made to history that you'll be able to remind me about when you listen to this in the future. Um, we're looking at doing some interviews with fans, talking about their experiences at concerts and such. We're hoping to open up with some backstage information, uh, 
regarding the U2.com contest. We've had a couple of people agree to talk with us about what it was like backstage there. Um, and then from that, we'll branch out more to people out in the wider fan community. There's a series that's tentatively being called The Case, where we'll mention a song that we think you 2 should play again, or for the first time, and mention why. What we will not do, and I might have to restrain Axe from doing this, but what we will not do is talk about songs that should not be played again. <laughs> um, we don't want to see anything like that on In A Little While, for instance. We gave it quite a hard time on the 360 tour. Personally, I don't mind the song. I just think it was in the wrong, totally the wrong place, the wrong kind of tour for it to appear. Whereas I just think that song's complete garbage and should never have even been released. But, uh, uh, his, his opinion towards uh, there's, there's, there's my inflammatory opinion for the podcast. Yeah, his, his opinion's a bit more extreme. I wouldn't mind hearing it again on an indoor tour. I think it would have worked well on the Vertigo tour, for instance. Um, better than I think it only got two performances on that tour while getting done to death on 360, which, yeah, I agree. You know, even if you like the song, 360 was not the tour for it. Your Blue Room was always my preference in that slot, and even if they didn't want to do that, I think Staring at the Sun would have made the space case probably better than In a Little While. But mm. anyways, regardless of that, yeah, the case, uh, tentatively... Uh, probably will not be talking about Acrobat. That might be the one song I make an exception for and argue why it should not be played. Controversy. Uh, I am with Mackin on that. I I adore that song. It's in it's in my top ten studio songs. Um, I do not want to hear it live anymore. I I don't think it will live up to the impossible expectations that we had for it. Although speaking of Acrobat, that leads us into. The next feature series that I'd like to start is on, and that is live cover songs. Not songs where you two have performed a cover, but where there are live versions of people playing U2 songs. We'd like to start this out with actual legitimate releases, as opposed to uh, Joe Smith and his garage band playing it on YouTube. Um, there are many tribute albums available on iTunes, uh, or for purchase from various retailers around the world, and some of them are live albums. Um, so we would like to take a look at the live covers. There may be one or two exceptions where we look at covers that are not recorded live. Uh, I'm thinking, say, the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra's renditions of some U2 songs, but um, that would be a very rare thing. There's a few albums I can think of, one of which has a live cover of Acrobat, which is not too bad. Um, and in addition to that, the other feature that we're kind of looking at is maybe doing some more uh, release informations on particular songs or on select cities in the vein of the U2 Loves Paris article. I can't promise how often to think those things will come out, but it's something we'd like to start work on, and it'll give you some guys something to read in the downtime while we wait for the next information from you too. I mean, as you can see, you know, we bounce around a lot of these ideas, and it really is a question of you know finding the time um, to do it. So, you know, hopefully we'll be able to keep these up because I think we've had quite a number of exciting ideas, both in terms of these sorts of main page features and in terms of 
information that we can add to the data, and that's what tweaks that we can make to the database. So hopefully you'll see some of these come through, hopefully all of them. Um, but of course, we're, we're, you know, it's a very small team here, and it can be hard to find the time. I mean, when I first came onto the site, I was an undergraduate student, so I had a lot of time to myself. Um, you know, I had, you know, only a few classes a week, so it was very easy for me to cover concerts. You know, now that I actually work for a living, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's much harder. I'm lucky that I still have, you know, quite flexible work schedule compared to most people. I feel very privileged to, you know, be able to be a historian working at a university. It's, it's an absolute pleasure, and it has had the flexibility to allow me to continue to contribute quite heavily to the site during the tour. Um, but, you know, we are a small team, so often we'll have these very good ideas um, and may not be delivered as quickly as we would like them to. But hopefully we'll be able to see some really cool content on the site to um, keep you at least um, mildly sated through to whenever there are more shows. We're working on things. Uh, we've mentioned the database a few times. Axe is busy with his work. Matt's very busy with his work. I'm not busy at all, but I'm lazy and I don't know any coding, so I can't do anything there. <laughs> well, um, I don't know. I don't know coding either. You know, that's that's where Matt is just the heart and soul of well, the genius of the site because he's the one who keeps the damn thing running. I just write a whole load of crap. We 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 just talk a yeah we just talk a lot of crap. Matt Matt does all the hard work. We just we just keep the fans the flames fanned. Rile, rile <laughs> or, or, or in my case, keep mating flames with my <laughs> often unpopular opinions on on YouTube songs. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm, you, I'm, you have some of the most unpopular opinions. You had one person say that. Who you know in real life, I believe, who said that they were going to kill you and all your family if you included Zeropa as a full song of this tour. <laughs> yes, uh, that was that was quite amusing. Um, uh, you know, knowing the guy and exactly the spirit in which he did that. Um, but um, no, uh, my my opinions on songs like One have certainly not always gone down very well with the, the wider community. But I think I think that's you know obviously part of the fun of it, that we all do have our own favourites. We all have our songs that we dislike. Um, I mean, I think if you didn't appreciate the electric co on this tour, you're probably deaf and might not count as a person. But, hey, this is the fun of, you know, all of us contributing our various views. If you didn't, if you don't like the electric co on this tour, there's a good chance that Axe has just blocked you from replying on Twitter. <laughs> um... Yeah, we're not going to make any promises. Of course, that's the other thing, that I'm often brutally sarcastic about this, and I don't know if everyone always gets that on, on Twitter. Yeah, it, you can't take anything Axe says too seriously on Twitter. It's <laughs> all said with sarcasm. So Unless it's a statistic, I'm probably kidding. Yes. But like we say, we're not going to make any promises for all the stuff. It's going to be little tweaks here and there. We'll hopefully have things to say. I'm not going to bring out any dates for these articles that I'm hoping to write or start and have other people work on as well. Um, I have all too vivid memories of that series I intended to write on the road to Sarajevo and then I ended up 
writing just the first portion and then not doing anything else. So that's something that I kind of want to avoid repeating. So don't expect any multi-part articles unless the second or third part has already been written. Yes, I mean, this is the thing. Um, like with my song predictions, I wrote almost all of them, not quite in one burst, but in a very short period of time. And so I'm like, yeah, this is fine, and started posting them. And then, of course, I just never wrote No Line on the Horizon, and then didn't get around to it until Mac and pestered me and pestered me and finally got me to do the bloody thing. And I'm glad he did, because, you know, I, I wanted that series to be complete, and I'm very happy with that series. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I wish it hadn't taken me quite so long with that final part. And for those of you who couldn't hear through the slight distortion and Axe's Kiwi slash Aussie accent, he said pestered, not pissed at. <laughs> That's kind of how it sounded here. I knew what word you were trying to say, but... <laughs> One other thing that I'd like to bring back, I don't know if we will or not, but it's kind of a look at the set list of the week, which I think was done for a short time after 360. It might have been Vertigo, looking at a historical set list and discussing it slightly. That was something you worked on, I think, initially, Axe. Yes, I think I did five or six of those, and they sort of devolved into being more setless for the month. Um, and then I think the tour resumed. I think I did that in the middle of Vertigo, uh, maybe. Um, and yeah, we, we should definitely return to that because I think that was a really cool series. Um, and you know, we'll, we'll have other random articles at appropriate junctures. Uh, I hope people remember. I, th I think. Um, the three In best articles. Well, yes, the three best articles I've ever written on user events are the two about TV Gaga womanfish in this town, um, and the one that I wrote about the most evil snippet ever, <laughs> which oh, was "Come nice. on Eileen," which is song six 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 in our database. We'll soon be over a thousand songs. That's extraordinary to realise. There's 393 songs that have been played in full, including songs that have just been snippeted. That takes us to 846 different songs. And I think we'll reach, we'll reach song 1000 earlier than that, actually, because we're already into the 900s for the code, because there have been times where we've accidentally had duplicates or titles entered incorrectly. Or oh, um, we've had a not-live version. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, we've, we've had things that have been deleted. So Song 1000 might not actually be the 1000th song to be played or snippeted. Uh, but I, I can't believe there are that many in the database. But, you know, I guess the fact that we encompass, uh, you know, decades of live shows um, with, uh, for a band that as a frontman who will slip at all sorts of things means, yeah, we do build up this very large database, but it can still be quite extraordinary to look at it and realise. And we're always, we're always adding new songs as well. Uh, I mentioned earlier in the podcast the brief snippet in Uncut Dub, that was the first, uh, the first time that song was used that we can find. Um, so it was the first entry in the database for that song, I should say. So, you know, we're always adding more when we discover new snippets. You've helped us add some more as well, so it won't be too long. I mean, I Will Follow mm. has over 900 known performances. In reality, it's probably already over the 1,000 performance mark. Yes, I used to make that, um, and I went through 
when when I first wrote uh, Setlist Fact, uh, I went through and tried to make an estimate of how many times I will follow was formed for which we don't actually have information. So that was, you know, going and looking at how many set lists uh, there are uh, for which we either don't have information or have incomplete information that does not include I will follow and considered whether or not it was likely that I will follow was performed on that night. Um, and I, my estimate is that there are 130 to 160 missing performances of I Will Follow. Uh, and so I'm glad that it got played as much as it did this tour, because there was a brief period there um, a few years ago where we had where Pride actually had more known performances than I Will Follow. And I didn't like that, because although, yes, it was accurate for what we know, it didn't reflect the reality that there are so many missing early set lists that I will follow is definitely the band's most played live song. I, I didn't like the fact that our master page of total live performances gave perhaps some readers a false impression. I just want to, I guess, end this off by saying we've had some people ask us in the past, where do you get all this information, especially for these early set lists? So I'd just like to point out now where we kind of get a lot of that stuff from. The single biggest individual resource is a book called U2 Live. It's by an author called Pimyal de la Para. He's unfortunately no longer with us. And as a result of that, uh, the book only covers up until I believe it's the Super Bowl performance in 2002. It's still a fortnight till Christmas, but if you've got a U2 fan in your life, I recommend that. As well as that book, we have some archives that we've been provided with, where they're old newspaper articles. Sometimes they're just clippings that people have kept. Sometimes they're memories that people have carried, or an old live show recording that's not necessarily the best quality, but it might crop up. There Many are... of these old bootlegs are just invaluable for filling gaps, especially when bootlegs emerge that nobody had known about for a very long time. On the very rare occasion, the band themselves will provide it to us. And for the, I think, fourth time this podcast, that would be another time, another place, live at the Marquee. We, had, we knew it had taken place. We had no information on it other than that it had taken place. And then, lo and behold, it was provided to us. And so we were able to fill that information in. Yeah, well, we're always, you know, very, very careful. If there's something on the site, we have a source that, you know, confirms that it happened. Um, but, you know, we, we try to make use of, you know, a multiplicity of sources. And certainly, you know, as somebody with historical training, modern historical training, I, I try to make it, you know, use of any avenue of knowledge that I possibly can, rather than trying to restrict ourselves to saying, oh, if we don't have it in, you know, from this particular kind of source, it doesn't count. Uh, you know, we're very keen on engaging with fans with, you know, anything that people remember. Memories can be difficult. Um, we won't take just anything, especially if something doesn't seem right, if it doesn't align with what the band were normally doing, we're going to need a higher standard of proof. Um, but, yeah, we try to engage with, 
you know, all the ways in which the band's performances have been recorded, catalogued. And there are some rare occasions where we have multiple sources for the same concert and they have differing information. We always note that in the comments section at the bottom of the set list in the database when that's the case. And yeah. it's very rare that that's happened, but it's usually an early concert show. Might yeah, there are a few bizarre examples. Like, I think it's a war tour show in Salt Lake City where there's no recording of it, and there are a couple of newspaper reports that disagree with each other. Um, and then there are fan reviews that also... Um, I don't think the reviews are as contradictory. They try to shed more light and actually quite helpful working out what's accurate. But, yeah, there, there are... There are war reviews that suggest like Refugee was played at one song, at one concert, and I think that's just a mistake in identification. Um, there are some very weird things in some of these early newspaper reports. Um, my favourite is a, um, a U2 3 tour report um, where the journalist mentions a song called Boy Meets Man. And you look at that and you think, oh, that was probably Twilight. They just, you know, caught a common lyric. That's, uh, that's a trend in a lot of these really early reports that um, a song will be identified by a common lyric that isn't actually the title. However, the weird part about this report is that it then goes on to say um, that it lists a couple of other song names and then it says Twilight. And so it's like, hang on a minute, have they managed to mention Twilight twice, once by its actual name, once as Boy Meets Man, or are they referring to something else? And we simply don't know. Um, I, I, that is noted in the comment section for that show. Uh, so this is the sort of thing you have to deal with, with a lot of these early shows. And, you know, it doesn't help that sometimes the song's got different names, like Silver Lining and 11 O'Clock TikTok. They're, Forever in touch. They're almost, yeah, like, there are some really good live quality versions of Silver Lining out there, which is surprising because we only know of it being played about four times. But if you listen to it, it's clearly the same song musically, but about half the lyrics are different. So it's not as clear cut as it just being a title change. Whereas then you might have something like Lucifer's Hands and Return of the Stingray Guitar. Clearly we know that they evolved from the same song. And yet they're two totally different songs at the same time. So, you know, we're not going to go through and list all the Return of the Stingray guitar performances as Lucifer's Hands or anything like that. Same with 11 O'Clock TikTok and Silver Lining or uh, Pete the Chop and Treasure, whatever happened to Pete the Chop. There's just so much, especially in the early days, that, you know, it could be the same song or it could be something totally different. It could be something we've never heard of or it could be something that we've heard all too often. So you never know. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's often you know, quite an interesting evolutionary process in these songs. Um, so having you know, these early versions can be really fascinating. Well, I think that about wraps it up, Ax. Um, yes, well... Um, any closing remarks? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, my final thought is obviously the end of the tour was a particularly um, emotional time, a pow you know, powerful shows, memorable shows, um, after the, you know, the terrible events in Paris. And there was, there was a tweet that I made just after that, but I think it was probably the best thing that I wrote um, on Twitter this year um, that I think uh, is a good note 
to end on, um, which was whether or not we have more innocent and, innocence and experience shows coming up. There's a lot of live music out there. Um, you know, when you keep attending live music, support your live music scene, uh, enjoy the simple things in life because you can, uh, like family, friends, community and local bands, and don't let the bastards grind you down. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I'm Matkin. That I'm Axe. He's Axe. Um, <laughs> kind of spoke over him. And, well, thank you for listening. Thanks for a great two legs on the tour. And, you know, look forward to seeing more of us in the future. And we look forward to seeing more of you.